Section 6 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Leo Wiener. Chapter 4, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. And here is how this goodness is confirmed. Quote, goodness is the chief cause of creation and providence. God has existed and continued in bliss since eternity, without having any need of any one, but only of his infinite goodness. He wanted to make other beings the co-partners of his bliss, and so he gave them existence, adorned them with various perfections, and did not stop lavishing upon them all benefits which are necessary for existence and bliss." Unquote. From eternity, that is, an endless number of years, God lived in bliss by himself, and with all his all-wisdom had not thought before of creating the world. Thus goodness, which is to be taken in the sense that the idea of evil cannot be connected with the idea of God, is mutilated in this conception and debased to the lowest blasphemous representation. Quote, Completest truth and verity. We profess God as being true and veracious. Verax fidelis. Because whatever he reveals to creatures, he reveals correctly and exactly, and in particular no matter what promises or threats he utters, he always carries out what he says." Unquote. True to whom? The idea of threat and punishment, the idea of evil, connected with God, and then texts which confirm the statement that God cannot lie. Quote, Infinite justice, under the name of justice, or truth, justicia, we here understand the property in God by which he meets out the due to all moral creatures, namely, he rewards the good and punishes the bad." Unquote. The all-good God meets out eternal punishment to people for a sin committed in the temporal life, and that is confirmed by texts. Quote, and the unrighteous will hear the heavy doom of the unbiased judge, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty five forty one. Besides, Holy Scripture B bears testimony to the fact that the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. Proverbs three thirty three. Compare with Proverbs fifteen twenty five. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity, and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Psalm 94, verse 23. C. Calls God a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. Deuteronomy 4, 24. And D. In human fashion ascribes to him anger and vengeance. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 Compare with Exodus 32.10 
Numbers 11.10, Psalms 2.5, and 88.5-7, Ezekiel 7.14. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12.19, Hebrews 10.30, Deuteronomy 32.35. Lord God of vengeance, God hath not shown himself. Psalm 94, verse 1. Unquote. This apparent contradiction did not arrest the author, just as he had not been arrested by the contradictions in each division of the properties of God. But here he stopped apparently because the contradiction had been observed long ago, and there had been objections raised, and the Holy Fathers, on the basis of whom the whole book is written, had expressed themselves in regard to it. Here is what the Holy Fathers had said about it. Quote, the true God must of necessity be both good and just. His goodness is a just goodness, and his truth a just truth. He remains just even when he forgives us our sins and pardons us. He remains good when he punishes us for our sins for he punishes us as a father, not in anger or revenge, but in order to mend us for our own moral advantage, and so his very punishments are a greater proof of his paternal goodness toward us and his love than of his truth. Unquote. The question is how to solve the contradiction between goodness and justice. How can a good God punish with eternal fire for sins? Either he is not just or not good. The question seems to be both simple and legitimate. The author makes it appear that he is answering the question when he quotes the authorities of Arrhenius, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Chrysostom, Hilary, Augustine. There are plenty of authorities, but what have they said? They have said, you ask whether God can be just if there is eternal torment for a temporal sin? And we answer that God must be both just and good. His goodness is just goodness, and his justice is good justice. For that is precisely what I am asking. How is this? How can a good and just God punish with eternal torment for a temporal sin? And you say that he punishes like a father for our moral good, and that his punishments are proof of his goodness and love. What kind of correction and love is this, to burn forever in fire for a temporal sin? But the author thinks he has explained everything, and he calmly finishes the chapter. Quote, Every sound mind must acknowledge the completest justice in God. Every injustice toward others can arise in us only from two causes, from ignorance or from the error of our mind, and from perversity of will. But in God these causes cannot take place. God is an omniscient and most holy being. He knows all the most hidden deeds of moral beings, and is able worthily to appreciate them. He loves every good by his own nature, and hates every evil also by his nature. Let us add that God is at the same time an almighty being, who therefore has all the means at hand in order to recompense others according to their deserts. Unquote. 
I have quoted this merely to show that I do not leave out a thing. That is all which is used to solve the contradiction. The disclosure of the essence of God in himself and in his essential properties is finished. What was there in it? It began by saying that God was incomprehensible, but the statement was added that at the same time he was comprehensible in part. This knowledge in part is disclosed to us in such a way that God is one, and not two or three. That is, to the idea of God there is added an improper concept of number, which, by the first definition, is not applicable to him. Then it is disclosed to us that in the partly comprehensible God we none the less know the distinction between his essence and his properties. The definition of the essence of God consisted in saying that he was a spirit, that is, an immaterial, simple, uncomplicated being, which, therefore, excludes all subdivision. But immediately after that is disclosed that we know the properties of this simple essence and are able to subdivide it. About the number of these properties it says that it is infinite, but from this infinite number of properties of the simple essence, the spirit, fourteen properties are disclosed to us. After that, we are suddenly told that this simple essence, the spirit, differs from all other beings, and besides, has mind and will. Nothing is said about what is to be understood by the words mind and will of a simple essence, the spirit. And on the basis of the fact that the simple essence is composed of mind and will, fourteen properties are divided into three classes. A. Essential properties in general. The essential properties of the divine essence in general. I change nothing and add nothing. Are again subdivided. A. A into essential properties of the divine essence in general which distinguish it in general from the other beings and bb into essential properties of the divine essence in general which distinguish it in particular from other beings and thus we receive triple a unlimitedness to which for some reason all perfection is unexpectedly attached by a sign of equality triple b self-existence triple c independence triple d immeasurableness and omnipresence again unexpectedly patched on to it triple e eternity triple f unchangeableness triple g almightiness the properties of the divine mind are a omniscient b the highest wisdom and the properties of the divine will are a freedom b holiness c goodness d truth e justice the method of the exposition is the same as in the previous parts obscurity of expressions contradictions clothed in words which elucidate nothing an abasement of the subject its reduction to the lowest sphere a neglect of the demands of reason and the eternally repeated tendency to connect in an external verbal way 
the most diversified judgments about God, beginning with Abraham and going on to the fathers of the church, and on that tradition alone to base all the arguments. But in this part, which has so clearly deviated from the path of common sense, from the very first statements about God, where the determination of the divine properties begin, there is a new feature. There is a composition of words which apparently have absolutely no meaning for the author. Obviously, the words have been detached entirely from the thought with which they were connected and no longer evoke any ideas. For a long time, I made terrible efforts to understand what is understood, for example, by the various spiritual essences, by the distinctions of the properties, and by independence, by the divine mind and will, and could not understand it, and convinced myself that all the author wanted was in an external way to connect all the text, but that even for the author there did not exist a rational connection in his own words. This article speaks of the same thing that involuntarily presents itself to one when the properties of the incomprehensible God are counted out to him. Every person who believes in God cannot help feeling the blasphemy of these subdivisions. And here the words of the fathers of the church express precisely what each believer feels, namely, that God is incomprehensible to reason and that all those words and epithets which we have applied to God have no clear meaning, and blend into one, and that the conception of God as a beginning of everything, and incomprehensible to reason, is simply indivisible, and that to divide God according to his essence and properties is the same as destroying the idea of God. The essence and the essential properties of God are not distinguished or divided among themselves in reality. On the contrary, they are one in God. This idea necessarily results from those passages of Holy Scripture where God is represented as the purest spirit, and from Him are removed all materiality, corporeality, and complexity. If the essential properties in God were indeed separate and distinct from his essence, and from one another, he would not be simple, but complex, that is, he would be composed of his essence and of his properties which are distinct among themselves. Thus reasoned the fathers of the church, quote, The deity is simple and uncompounded, unquote, says St. John de Massine. Quote, for what is composed of many and various things is composite. If we shall thus take uncreatedness, uncommensedness, incorporeality, immortality, eternity, goodness, creative power, and similar properties as essential distinctions in God, the deity, being composed of so many properties, will not be simple but composite but it would be extreme infidelity to affirm that." Unquote. Other extracts are quoted from the Holy Fathers in confirmation of this idea, so that one only wonders what all these former subdivisions and definitions were for. But these clear, incontestable arguments, 
which re-echo in the heart of each believer in God as full of truth, are preceded by just an unexpected discussion as was given in the case of the comprehensibility and incomprehensibility of God, and such as those which precede the disclosure of each dogma. In the dogma about God, the statement is made and proved that God is incomprehensible, and then there is a pretense at a proof that he is comprehensible. For the solution of this contradiction, there is invented the doctrine about comprehensibility in part. Here it says that the essence and the essential properties of God are not distinguished or divided. And immediately on page 147 it says, quote, The essence and the essential properties of God, without being distinguished or divided between themselves, in fact are, none the less, distinguished in our ratiocination and not without foundation in God himself, so that the concept of any one property of his is not at the same time a concept of his essence or a concept of any other property." Unquote. This proposition, in the author's opinion, necessarily results from Holy Scripture, and there are quoted the words of Basil the Great that, quote, our distinctions of the divine properties are not merely purely subjective, no, their foundation is in God himself, in his various manifestations, actions, relations to himself, such as the creation and providence, though in himself God is one, simple, uncompounded." Unquote. Do you imagine that this palpable contradiction of the Holy Fathers is accidentally collated? Do you think that it is solved in any way? Not in the least. That is precisely what the author needs, and in that lies the meaning of this twenty-second article. It begins like this. Quote, this question has been raised in the Church since antiquity, but especially during the Middle Ages, both in the West and the East, and in solving it, men have frequently fallen into extremes. The first extreme assumes that between the essence and the essential properties of God, as well as between the properties themselves, there is a real difference, realis, so that the properties form in God something distinct from the essence and from each other. The other extreme, on the contrary, affirms that the essence and all of the essential properties of God are absolutely identical among themselves, and that they are not separated either in fact or even in our ratiocination. Cognitazione. Unquote. The Orthodox Church teaches that both propositions are equally remote from truth. Which, then, is nearer to the truth? Nothing is said about that. Two opposite opinions are put forth, and nothing is said for their solution. I carefully searched in all five pages, and there is not a word in them about how it is to be understood. Not a word. The conclusion of the article is as follows. Quote, Remarkable are also the words of St. Augustine that refer to the present case. It is one thing to be God, another to be Father. 
though paternity and essence in God are one, it is impossible to say that the Father by his paternity is God, by his paternity all-wise. Such has always been the firm conviction of our fathers, and they rejected the Anonymians as having erred far beyond the limits of the faith, because these heretics destroyed all distinction between the essence and the divine properties." Unquote. The end of the chapter. But are the Anonymians right? Or why are the words of the blessed St. Augustine remarkable? That makes no difference. But how are we to understand it all? The words of St. John de Massine are true, as the author himself says. How are they to be made to agree with the contradictory words of St. Augustine? And are they true or not? The author does not even regard it as necessary to answer this, and concludes the chapter. In the preceding article about the essence and the fourteen divine properties, I was struck by the trait of the complete disassociation of ideas and the manifest play with mere contradictory or synonymous words in complete darkness. But here is another feature of an extraordinary neglect offensive not only to my reason but also to my feelings which is shown to me and to the whole congregation which is listening to the teachings of the church in this article is directly expressed a contradiction and it says quote, this is white and this is black unquote. and you cannot say that this is white nor that this is black for the church teaches you to recognize both that is, that the black is white and the white black, so that here is expressed not only a demand that you should believe what the church says, but that you should repeat with your tongue what it says. After that comes Article 23, The Moral Application of the Dogma. The moral application of the first dogma, of the dogma of the divine unity, has struck me only by its inconsistency. The moral rules which were taught on the basis of the unity of God were apparently not deduced from it, but were simply patched on the words, quote, God is one, we must live in oneness, unquote, and so forth. But when I met with the second application, and in looking through the whole work for all the moral rules which were inevitably applied to each dogma, recalled what had been said in the introduction that the dogma of faith and the laws of morality had inseparably been revealed by God to men and were inseparably connected. I understood that these applications were not accidental, but very important as showing the meaning of the dogmas for the saving life, and so I turned my close attention to them. Here is the application of the dogma about the essence and the properties of God. Quote, God by his essence is a spirit, and by the chief property of the essence which embraces all the others, he is an unlimited spirit, that is, most perfect, highest, all-glorious. From this we learn, first of all, to honor and love God, for whom shall we honor and whom love, if not the most perfect, 
when every perfection naturally evokes these feelings in us. The love of God, united with respect, forms the foundation of all our obligations toward Him. Matthew 22:37. We learn at the same time that our love of God and our honoring of God must be sincerest spiritual. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, says the Savior. John 4.24 Every external worship can have a value only when it is an expression of something inward. Otherwise it displeases God. Isaiah 1.11-15 And the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, according to the words of the prophet, Psalm 51.17 Highest and fullest, because in His perfections God infinitely surpasses all other beings to whom we are able to feel respect and love. Consequently, Him above all else must we love with all our heart, and with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. Mark 12.30 Most profoundly reverential if even the seraphim, who in heaven surround the throne of God, the All-Holder, unable to endure the grandeur of His glory, cover their faces when they cry unto one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.3, then with what trepidation of awe ought we, the lowest and weakest of His spiritual creatures, to serve Him? Psalm 2.11 Quote, Let us learn to glorify God with our heart and our mouth, with our mind and all our life, remembering the words of the psalmist, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. Psalm 95, 8 Psalm 144, 3 And the words of the Saviour, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Let us learn at last to turn to God as our highest good, and in Him alone look for our fullest consolation, repeating with David, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion for ever. Psalm 73.25.26 However profound the thirst of our mind may be in its search after truth, God is the highest truth. However fiery the striving of our will may be toward the good, God is the most perfect good. However insatiable the love of our heart may be for happiness and bliss, God is the highest and interminable bliss. Where then, if not in Him, shall we be able to find a full gratification for all the high needs of our spirit? Quote, Reflecting, in particular, on the separate properties of the divine essence, which distinguish God from His creatures, we can draw from them new lessons for ourselves. And, if God alone is self-existent, 
that is, is in no way under any obligations to anyone, while all the other beings, consequently we, too, are under obligations to him, we must constantly humble ourselves before him, according to the words of Scripture, What hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 And constantly thank him, for in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28 If he alone is independent and all-satisfied, and so does not demand our goodness, Psalm 16, 2 but on the contrary gives to all life and breath and all things acts sixteen twenty five we must experience within us a feeling of the fullest dependence on him and of the most complete submission to him and in bringing him gifts or sacrifices not imagine that we are obliging the all-satisfied god in this manner since all which we have is his property. The confidence that we are always before the face of the omnipresent God, no matter where we may be, naturally inclines us to act before him with the greatest circumspection and reverence, can keep us from sins, as it once kept Joseph from sinning. Genesis 39, 9 can encourage and console us in all perils, as it consoled David, who said about himself, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Psalm 16, 8 Can incite us to invoke, glorify, and thank the Lord in every place. John 4, 21-24 Quote, keeping in mind that God alone is eternal, while everything else which surrounds us on earth is temporal and vanishing, we learn not to cleave with the soul to perishable possessions, but to seek the one imperishable possession in God, Matthew six, nineteen and 20. Not to put our trust in princes, nor in the sons of man, who may die any moment, and leave us without a support. Psalm 146, 3-5 But to put our trust in Him who alone has immortality, 1 Timothy 6, 16, and will never abandon us. Quote, the thought of God's complete unchangeability can still more incite us to put this exclusive trust in God for men in general are fickle. The favor of the great and mighty of the earth is easily shaken and passes. The very love of our relatives and friends frequently betrays us, whereas God alone is always the same and unchangeable, can at the same time incite us to imitate the unchangeableness of God in a moral sense, that is, to be as firm and constant as possible in all the honorable pursuits of our spirit and in our unwavering march along the path of virtue and salvation 
Quote, the live faith in Almighty God teaches us to implore His aid and blessing in all our undertakings. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Psalm 77, 1. Not to be afraid of anything, and not to lose courage amidst the greatest dangers, so long as we are doing what pleases Him, and thus attract his good will. If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 But to fear him and tremble before him, if we do what displeases him, he is able to destroy not only our body, but also our soul in hell. Matthew 10.28 Quote, if we turn our attention to the properties of the divine mind, we shall find even here many edifying things for ourselves. God is omniscient. What consolation and encouragement for the righteous man! Let people who do not know his intentions and are not able to appreciate his actions insult and even persecute him. He is rewarded by the knowledge that God himself clearly sees his soul with all its thoughts and wishes, knows all his deeds in the bloody battle with the enemies of salvation, knows his intentional privations and innocent suffering, knows every sigh and every tear of his amidst heavy temptation. No matter how hypocritical he may be before men, how much he may try to conceal his criminal intentions, in what darkness he may be committing his lawlessness, he cannot help confessing that there is a being from whom is, is a he cannot help confessing that there is a being from whom it is impossible to conceal himself, before whom everything is naked and open. Hebrews four thirteen, and that it is possible to deceive men but never God. God is infinitely wise, and thus let not our mind and soul be dejected, if in social life or in nature we shall see any phenomena which seem to threaten a universal ruin and destruction, for all that is done or omitted by the unsearchable fate of the highest wisdom. Let us not be faint of heart or murmur against God, if we ourselves have occasion to be in straitened circumstances. But let us rather give ourselves altogether to his holy will, believing that he knows better than we what is useful and what harmful to us. Let us learn according to our strength to imitate his highest wisdom, tending all the time toward that supreme aim which he has set for us, and selecting for ourselves those most reliable means, which he himself has outlined for us in his revelation. Quote, Finally, each of the properties of the divine will either only offers us a model for imitation, or at the same time also imparts certain other moral lessons. God is called supremely free, because he always selects only what is good, and this he does without any external pressure or incitement. It is in this, then, that our true freedom ought to consist. 
in the possibility and freely acquired habit of doing only what is good only because it is good and not in the arbitrary will of doing good and evil as people generally think and still less in the arbitrary will of doing only what is bad for whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin says our saviour john eight thirty four and committing evil we every time lose part of our freedom more and more submitting to our passions and impure strivings over which we ought to rule god is supremely holy and has commanded to us ye shall sanctify yourselves and ye shall be holy for i am holy the lord your god leviticus eleven forty four without this condition we can never become worthy of the most blissful union with the lord for what communion hath light with darkness two corinthians six fourteen nor shall we ever be worthy of seeing god for only the pure in heart shall see god matthew five eight god is infinitely good to all his creatures and to us in particular this teaches us to thank him for all his benefits and for his paternal love to repay him with filial love we love him because he first loved us 1 john 4:19 not only is there no sense in all that but there is not even any connection except what the french call a propos indeed what moral application can there be from the fact that god is one and immeasurable and a spirit and trine what is remarkable is not that the exposition of this moral application of the dogma is written disconnectedly and badly but that an application has been invented for a dogma that can have no applications at all involuntarily it occurs to me why should i know these incomprehensible most contradictory dogmas since from their knowledge absolutely nothing can result end of section six recording by laurie arsenault